We'll hear argument first this morning in number 905635, John J. McCarthy, Petitioner versus George Bronson. Mr. Cerf. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. While an inmate in a Connecticut prison, Petitioner was sprayed with tear gas and forcibly removed from his cell. On the basis of that single episode, uh, he filed a 1983 action against respondents who are various officials and guards at the facility. The case was referred to a federal magistrate who conducted an evidentiary hearing and on that basis recommended that the case be resolved against Petitioner. He can damages? He sought both damages and injunctive relief, Justice White. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only question presented in this case is uh, whether the reference was proper. In other words, whether a complaint based on a single episode of unconstitutional, uh, unconstitutionally excessive force qualifies as a, quote, prisoner petition challenging conditions of confinement within the meaning of Section 636B of the Federal Magistrates Act and is thereby subject to reference without the party's consent. Mr. Surf, do we take the case uh, with the agreement of both parties that the defendant waived jury trial here? That issue is not before the case, uh, before the court, Justice. So we decide it as though there was a waiver? That is correct. Now, I don't think, uh, Justice O'Connor, that the fact that there uh, was a waiver of the jury uh, right here is relevant to the argument we make under the Seventh Amendment. And perhaps I should... uh, uh, address that. We think as an initial matter that by far the most natural reading of the statutory language is to construe the phrase prisoner petitions challenging conditions of confinement to refer to uh, ongoing circumstances or practices as distinct from a fully consummated, isolated uh, event. Uh, we think that conforms with common usage, with this Court's uh, use of the phrase, uh, and with the use of the phrase by Congress and various other statutes. Whatever the outer limits of the definition may be, we think it strains the common meaning beyond the breaking point to suggest that a guard, by virtue of beating one prisoner on one occasion, thereby creates conditions of confinement. But moving to your Seventh Amendment question, uh, Justice O'Connor, in this case, uh, respondent has conceded uh, that the magistrate is not empowered to conduct a jury trial at all in cases referred under the prisoner petitions uh, clause, indeed in any case referred without the uh, uh, consent of the parties. At the same time, cases, because of the rules governing the availability of injunctive relief, uh, cases uh, based on uh, a simple, fully consummated episode tend to be simple damages actions for which the party is entitled to a trial by jury under the Seventh Amendment. Now, in light of respondent's concession, we think it is just highly unlikely that Congress uh, would have intended to authorize the non-consensual referral of an entire class of cases for which uh, the uh, jury you, trial right so clearly attaches. You, you can prevent that by demanding a jury trial, can't you? Uh, that is correct. And the uh, respondent's position on this, of course, is that Congress wrote a statute uh, by which uh, prisoners are told that entirely against their will, uh, they may have a case referred for trial before a magistrate, never, never bothered to mention that they could entirely avoid the reference simply by timely invocation uh, but, but in this particular case, if, if uh, the respondent is right, uh, it, it worked the way Congress wanted it to. Uh, your client had his case referred to a magistrate. He could have prevented uh, the uh, referral by demanding a jury trial. He didn't. Chief Justice Rehnquist, I have a question that that was how Congress wanted it to work. I think that Congress chose the phrase conditions of confinement for a reason. It didn't say all prisoner petitions. 
It's, it used what amounts to a term of art. Now, what respondents are trying to sell here is the notion that all prisoner cases are governed under the case, and we th- are, are governed under the clause, and we think that's unlikely in light of the background Seventh Amendment concerns. Again, Mr. Chief Justice, we are not asserting an independent Seventh Amendment claim here. What we are suggesting is that as an interpretive device, the Seventh Amendment is quite uh, useful, and we think that the appropriate test here is that to the extent that a complaint, not at the time that a complaint is filed, but at the time that the case is actually set for trial, seeks and is appropriate for injunctive relief, in other words, it challenges an ongoing or recurrent circumstance uh, or, or practice, that in fact is a petition challenging conditions of confinement. If, on the other hand, the only complaint at the time that uh, the case uh, uh, gets to the point of trial uh, is that an isolated uh, event occurred, essentially a constitutional tort, I don't think that does if you can, the language. If you can waive a trial and you can waive a jury, why can't you waive this? I suppose one can waive it, uh, Justice Marshall, in the following sense. Under Section 636C, one can consent in any event the trial before a uh, magistrate. There was no consent here, at least as the case So the what court. do you take from that, a waiver? That's the, the, the Congress deemed that uh, consent rather than a waiver, but in effect it has the same, it has the same uh, but, consequences. What's so sacred about this, that you can't waive it? I'm not suggesting that the right can't be waived. What I am suggesting here is that Congress wrote a statute that says, independent of the choice of the litigants, it may be referred to magistrates entirely against their will. And again, we think that that is uh, a rather unlikely thing for it to have done, given that magistrates, as all parties before the court now concede, uh, take the position that magistrates are not empowered to uh, conduct a jury trial. There's a certain incongruity, it seems to me, in, in, in your interpretation. Perhaps it's not an incongruity, but it's, it seems strange at first blush. And that is that what you call a simple damages action based on a one-time thing uh, would go to the district judge. And a, a major prison structure claim that things are all out of whack at the prison could, could go to the magistrate. Respondents make the, very much the same argument as did the court below, and quite frankly, Mr. Chief Justice, I think it rests on some questionable premises. I, I don't think it can be said that as a class, cases uh, that qualify as uh, conditions cases are more serious than cases based on a single isolated uh, episode. It's always difficult, of course, to rank constitutional uh, violations, but to uh, suggest that a claim in which a prisoner was uh, beaten to death is somehow less serious than even a broad-based class action uh, seems to me uh, not to be uh, uh, it, an it, uh, It's not so much the seriousness of, of the event, but uh, the, the amount of discretion that's called for. It seems to me that if you were going to allot these cases by the, the, um, the confidence in the judgment, presumably you have more confidence in the judgment of a district judge than of a magistrate, you would say that if you're trying to restructure a court uh, prison system, that kind of a case you'd trust to the discretion of the district judge, whereas you might not trust it to the discretion of a magistrate. I, I think, uh, in fact, the incongruity implicit in the question is, is somewhat overstated. For example, we're not saying that only class actions qualify under our definition, not at all. Uh, and in addition, Congress authorized the referral of all cases, including those based on specific episodes of misconduct, under pretrial uh, and the dispositive motions provisions of the Act. And historically, uh, 96 percent in 1990 uh, of, of prisoner civil rights cases are disposed of even before 
uh, trial, I think that suggests, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, a high level of confidence in magistrates' ability to handle all kinds of cases of all levels of complexity. In addition... Mr. Serf, can I interrupt a minute? Uh, the, uh, you're, you're making a, 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 a plain language kind of an argument. You, you just say that the normal meaning of conditions of confinement suits uh, your, your description of it. But if, if I understand your description, um, if, if I have a claim that uh, as a prisoner... For one week, I was uh, thrown into a dank cell with no toilet facilities, with rats, uh, uh, abysmal conditions, for a week. And uh, I, I bring suit about that, uh, that one incident. I don't claim that it's general in the prison. I don't claim they've done it to me before or will do it to me afterwards. I'm just complaining about that one week. You say that is not a suit that relates to conditions of confinement. I, I, I would say, quite frankly, uh, Justice Scalia, that that is the most difficult category of cases to, get, to categorize, wherein you have what I suppose could be described as a past conditions case under any sort of conventional understanding of the phrase. Well, why do you say it's a past conditions case? You say it's a conditions case only if it's ongoing and continuing. Well, I'm saying that, that as you posited the hypothetical, uh, Justice Scalia, the, uh, uh, there was a condition of confinement in the conventional sense of the word in that for a period of time one was exposed to an unconstitutional uh, circumstance. Under your hypothetical, however, that uh, circumstance has abated and everybody agrees to that. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, I've found no such cases uh, in the reported cases. I suspect that's in part because damages actions such as those may very often shake out on qualified immunity grounds. Uh, given the rarity of the case, I think all that would be needed is a rule, and I would err on the side of administrability and say that the cleanest line here, and again, Congress required that some line be drawn, the cleanest line here would be to say that uh, complaints that at the time of trial uh, uh, seek to have tried an issue that there is an ongoing or at least uh, recurrent uh, circumstance would qualify under conditions. Gee, but if clean lines is the criterion, I think, uh, uh, I think you lose because uh, that's, that's the main argument that the other side has going for it, that it's a lot of trouble to draw any of these lines between ongoing and non-ongoing and so forth. I don't say that any complaint about how you're treating it, treated in prison relates to a condition of your confinement. That's a nice, clean line. It may be a clean line, Justice Scalia. I don't think it's the line that Congress drew, and indeed, I think that goes to the, to the very nub uh, of the case here. Congress simply didn't write a statute that said all prisoner litigation may be referred to magistrates. Well, but, Mr. Surf, in, in the case of uh, Prizer versus Rodriguez, this Court talked about the term conditions of confinement and gave some examples there that looked very much like this kind of case and said that was a, a matter of, of a condition of confinement. And I suppose that Congress had in mind trying to alleviate the administrative or the burdens on the lower courts of handling prisoner petitions and letting as many of them go to a magistrate as possible. And, and it would appear that under Prizer we could give a broader interpretation of the term conditions of confinement. Let me try to address both of those points, uh, Justice uh, O'Connor. As to Prizer, there's certainly no evidence in the legislative history that Congress was even aware of the Prizer case, much less uh, that it patterned the statute after it. Much less, as I recall the case, what was at issue there was whether a prisoner who was challenging the deprivation of good time uh, credits could escape the exhaustion requirements of habeas by filing the suit under 1983. And Congress uh, and the, the court 
held that to the extent the challenge uh, was to the fact or duration of confinement, exhaustion was required. To the extent it went to conditions of confinement, uh, habeas, uh, one could bring the claim under 1983. But because the case so clearly fell in the first category, uh, the court had no occasion to actually define what it meant by conditions of confinement. And indeed, if uh, the court goes back and reviews the cases cited as examples in the Prizer decision of, of so-called conditions case, I think it will find that uh, all of them, at least arguably, fall within the definition that we propose here. In one sense or another, they concerned an ongoing uh, circumstance uh, or, or practice. The most difficult case for us is the, the Haney case. I will concede that. But I think uh, at least arguably falls in our, in our category. As Suppose the prisoner alleges that... Uh if the officials will not in, are not enjoined, it is likely the conduct will be repeated. Does that turn it into a conditions of confinement case? I, I think it does, uh, Justice Kennedy. In, in that case, as don't, don't you almost always have to allege that uh, if you're going to ask for an injunction? Well, that's correct. And I think that, again, uh, the issue is not what is alleged in the complaint, because the decision is not made at that point. But after the completion of pretrial proceedings have clarified and refined the issue, that must actually uh, be tried, and the, and the issue is actually set out, then if at that point the plaintiff has set out the essential predicates of injunctive relief, and as you suggest, they are that there is an ongoing circumstance or a reasonable likelihood they will recur, I believe that then, in fact, is a challenge to conditions of confinement. I suppose this is a, a, a quite a routine and, and, and frequent allegation in order to support uh, the claim for injunctive relief, is it not? Uh, it is a, a routine allegation. Now, there are many, many cases. Whitley v. Albers is, is the classic paradigmatic example where only damages were sought. Uh, and again, that would not qualify as a conditions case. under. I assume, and I assume you have to make some such allegation if you're going to ask for injunctive relief. You, you would need to, indeed. Uh, these are often pro se complaints, and I think that uh, some uh, benefit of the doubt may be given to the, to the claimant in many of these cases. But again, an injunction, was, an injunction was asked for here, and I don't think that that is controlling as to whether or not it's a conditions case, because at the time that this case went to trial, as a result of the various pretrial proceedings, which again are conducted by the magistrate, it was absolutely clear that there was no injunctive claim left in uh, the case. Indeed, the uh, Assistant Attorney General had argued un unequivocally on pretrial motions that, quote, uh, it does not appear how any injunctive relief would be appropriate to this case, uh, there had been an effort to admit the various prison regulations. The uh, petitioner had made that effort on the eve of trial, and the uh, uh, magistrate had kept them out on the view that uh, this case was about a single incident back in 1983. So again, just, just to make sure our position is clear on this, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, it's not the allegations in the complaint that are controlling. It is what is the issue that must actually be tried. And by the way, that is a judgment that would need to be made uh, in any event. In any case on the eve of trial, there must be some kind of pretrial decision as to uh, uh, what issues must actually be tried. Well, isn't there one further wrinkle to it? And that is, as long as the damage action was kept alive, there could never be a reference uh, in what I would imagine was the run of the mill case in which there's a request for damages as well as an injunction. There could never be a reference. Um, uh, except at the potential cost of two trials. So well, as a practical matter, it seems to me what you're saying is that except in the unusual case in which there is no request for damages based on the, the past incidents of the practice in question, uh, there never can be a reference. I, I, that, that's not our position, uh, Justice. So why, why doesn't it follow from your position? Because it seems to me the only way out of it uh, would be for the court to say, well, we'll take a chance 
that when the injunctive proceedings are over, they'll drop the damage claim. Uh, and if the, if the court doesn't want to take that chance, then the court is going to face two trials or the potentiality of two trials uh, in every instance. I, I think that would not be the consequence, and if I, if I might try to uh, explain that. Uh, because of background Seventh Amendment concerns, we do think that the Prisoner Petitions Clause is a rough proxy for cases that seek and are appropriate for uh, injunctive relief. At the same time, it is not a perfect fit. For reasons discussed previously, if uh, a, someone includes an injunctive claim in what is otherwise what ought properly to be a damages suit, uh, we think the appropriate path is to have the injunctive claim uh, dismissed prior to trial and to uh, uh, treat it as a specific episodes case. And conversely, to get to your uh, example, if somebody brings a case that is a classic condition suit or is a condition suit under our definition and includes an associated uh, damages claim, I do think that nonetheless qualifies as a prisoner petition challenging conditions of confinement within the meaning of the, of, of, uh, of the Act. I don't think, however, that any imperfections in the fit undermine the basic point. And that basic point is it is simply implausible to believe that Congress would have even authorized the referral of an entire class of cases for, to which uh, the right so clearly attaches uh, without uh, have mating, making some provision for the magistrate to actually conduct a jury trial. Excuse me. I, I, it doesn't seem to me you, you've answered uh, uh, Justice Souter's concern. It isn't the fit he's concerned about. It's the fact that even when the, defend, when the plaintiff is willing to waive the jury trial, no good comes of this provision, whatever, so long as there's a claim for damages, because you, you must try that claim for damages before a judge. So what's the good of, of, of trying, uh, being able to try the injunction portion before a magistrate? Well, the good of it, I so, uh, In every case where, there, where there's a damage claim, you may as well not have the provision. I, I, again, I, I, let me be clear. If there is a damages claim and no jury trial right, and the damages claim is attached to or associated with a conditions claim, we think the magistrate can hear the case. That was the point I was trying to make oh, a moment ago. Well, well why is that? Uh, I, I think that, in a sense, you have uh, uh, a result that's driven by the statutory language. You have a, a statute that says conditions of confinement, and if you have a case challenging what everybody would agree to be conditions of confinement, for example, uh, petitioners generally are not being given enough food, and a subclass of the class action uh, alleges that uh, as a result of the inadequate caloric intake, uh, they are, uh, have suffered some damages for which they want compensation. I think that the language drives that result, and I think that would qualify as a prisoner petition's case. Again, if there is a time of jury trial demand, then uh, e either severance would be the mandated by the Constitution or the whole case would be tried uh, tried by the judge. But that's the imperfection of the fit I was trying to address before. I, I didn't understand that to be your position. Is that, is that the position you took in your brief? I, that's I, I, the position I, we took in our uh, reply brief, uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, I do want to uh, make one point in response to uh, an argument raised by uh, respondents. Uh, they suggest that rather cataclysmic results will, uh, will flow from the issue before the court today. And I want to suggest to the court that, in my estimation, that is uh, not, not right. Uh, all cases of any stripe, specific episode cases or conditions cases, may still be referred to the magistrates, and the vast majority of such cases shake out before trial. Uh, indeed, uh, in 1990, about 4 percent of cases actually needed to be tried. Of those, many, of course, may be tried pursuant to the consent of the parties. Uh, still others will satisfy our definition, and still others must be tried by the district court in any event to, to the extent there is a timely 
jury trial uh, demand. As a, res- as a practical matter, the number of cases actually affected by the decision today is relatively small. But in any event, I just don't think it's correct to suggest that any interpretation that results in more cases being referred to federal magistrates is uh, necessarily in accordance with Congress's broad objectives. Uh, in, in, in expanding the power of federal magistrates uh, over the years, Congress has been quite aware of the constitutional concerns associated with such delegations and has been appropriately uh, cautious. In our estimation, our view better accommodates both that historic caution and Congress's general objective of expanding the power of magistrates in some, but by no means all, classes uh, of cases. In, in the end, this is a relatively straightforward statutory case. We think that the uh, plain language, at the very least, tips in our favor, and uh, accordingly it is respondents' burden. Mr. And not Surf, can, I, can I ask you a couple more questions about sure. your line? I know this was raised in Justice Scalia's question. So the specific cases referred to in Pricer, do you say each of them except arguably Haynes was a case that would meet the conditions of confinement de- definition, the deprival of legal materials for the particular petition, the inability to the, the one religious objection in the other case? Yes, I do. And uh, I, uh, let me try to recall what those cases were. But the Cooper versus uh, Pate case, uh, for example, was a claim that a petitioner had been deprived of the Koran. And as I read the decisions in the lower courts, the claim was he was still being deprived of it. And therefore, there was sort of an ongoing uh, claim for which an injunction seems to be quite an appropriate remedy. As I recall, the... Uh, and and your, your line is that if he complained of having been deprived of it six months ago, but then he eventually got it, it would no longer be a conditions of confinement. Claim. That is my claim, unless, of course, and this is a judgment that would need to be made in, in any case, unless, of course, he had satisfied the city of Los Angeles versus Lyons test of indicating some real and immediate threat that he yeah. would again be exposed to that unconstitutional uh, conduct. Conversely, in the case before us, if the prison had a rule that said when prisoners refuse to sell, it's appropriate to use tear gas to get them out of their cells. Which is it then? If there's a rule that's saying when a prisoner refuses to leave the cell, then it's appropriate. Uh, again, a judgment would need to be made in that case as to whether uh, there was some reasonable likelihood that that regulation would be uh, applied to the person who, who would bring in the case. And I, I do want to suggest... Well, it's been applied as it has here. I mean, see, the, the thing that's different about this case is there's no such rule. Would it be a different case if there were a rule and it had been applied in it, this it, case? It probably would in this sense, Justice Stevens. I think the city of Los Angeles test is going to be applied more generously in the prison context. When you're talking about the citizens in a, in a city at large, it's somewhat difficult to actually demonstrate to the satisfaction of a court a real likelihood that one will again be exposed to even an ongoing regulation policy or practice. If you have a regulation in a prison context, one can think of extreme examples. But in the typical case, a prisoner not being able to leave, of course, has some relatively high likelihood uh, he or she will be exposed to that regulation. Well, isn't, 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 the, uh, isn't the prisoner the master uh, of, of his own complaint? Even if there is a regulation, uh, suppose he doesn't challenge it. He doesn't care about the regulation. He just cares about uh, what he's been subjected to. Are you saying that, that even if he doesn't uh, ask for... Uh, Elimination of the regulation, even if he, all he asked for is, uh, is, mo- is money damages for uh, the past violation, it would still be a condition of confinement no. case by virtue of the mere existence of the regulation? Uh, not at all. No, what I am suggesting is one needs to take into, take into account what is being challenged and, and the nature of the relief and the nature of the complaint. All of those. So it's up to him. He can make it a condition of confinement case by objecting to the regulation 
or if he doesn't want to object to the regulation, just wants to object to the application of the regulation to him, it becomes not a condition well, of consent. To a degree, that's true of, of any litigant, uh, I would think, Justice Scalia. One can, in the city of Los Angeles, it happened not to be a class action. I believe that uh, damages, at least as the case came to the court, were not at issue. One structures one's complaint to get the relief that one wants, but I don't think that that is... Uh, well, but, Mr. S- let me go a step further. Supposing the complaint is, I had inadequate dental care. I had a toothache on Friday and I couldn't get a dentist. And that's the sole charge, a single incident. And the defense is we have a regulation that the dentist is available on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday only. Something like that. So the real issue turns into the regulation. Is that conditions of confinement or isolated incident? I suspect that would be, if I understand the hypothetical, that would be a conditions case. I mean, I, I think the judgment there would be, is there a reasonable likelihood that that uh, practice is going to be uh, uh, applied to this prisoner? And I, I think it almost inescapable that it would be. But he doesn't really care about the rule. All he cares about is his own toothache. Well, if he's, yeah. if, if, if he's let me be absolutely clear, if he is only seeking damage, he said, for yeah. four days I had a, I had a, uh, a uh, toothache and I suffered terrible pain and I want compensation for that, and that's all he's asking for, no, I don't think that is a conditions case. Even though the defense is, the reason he didn't get it is because we have this standard regulation that this is the way we treat all prisoners. They don't get the dentist except on certain days. That's, that's correct, Justice mm-hmm. Stevens. That's your, the line that I would Your make. rule, then, is simply a rule of pleading. If he, if he is foolish enough to mention the regulation, uh, we got a conditions case. Uh, if he is laconic enough just to mention what happened to him on Friday, we don't. I mean, it's just a matter of pleading. Well, I don't suggest that it's only a matter of pleading, Justice Souter. I, I, I must, however, take the position that pleading is relevant to the analysis, as it is in the case of, of uh, any litigant. But if that's what it might turn into be a conditions case in any event, because if the prison lost in Justice Stevens' hypothetical, uh, I'm sure it would be collateral estoppel. And so it becomes a conditions uh, uh, case anyway. Uh, it may become that. I think that the, the key point in time here is at, at the time that the decision must be made, and that is when the case is about to go to trial. At that point, the magistrate has a clear sense of what the issues are to be tried. Now, if at that point he understands the defense is being raised and the complaint being, being the, what's left of the complaint after pretrial motions practice, if in fact the challenge is to an ongoing or recurrent circumstances, then I think that is a uh, challenge to uh, conditions of confinement. If I might, Mr. Chief Justice, may I reserve uh, the balance of my time? Yes, you may, Mr. Cerf. General Blumenthal, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the most reasonable, logical, and workable interpretation of this statute is the one that was adopted by the Second Circuit, which would include all grievances occurring during prison confinement. It is supported by the statutory text and legislative history. It doesn't undercut the Seventh Amendment. It offers full protection to any prisoner's Seventh Amendment rights. And it fulfills, most importantly, what was Congress's purpose in the 1976 amendments, which was to broaden the authority of the magistrates and ease the burden of the federal district court workload and, equally importantly, broaden the discretion of federal judges to refer matters to magistrates. You say the uh, Seventh Amendment right would be protected, uh, I suppose, just by the uh, prisoner demanding a jury trial in the damages case. Like, like every Isn't litigant, that, right? that is correct, right. Justice White, like every litigant, mm-hmm. a prisoner has the burden of demanding sure. a jury trial within the limitations of Rule 38. Uh, <clears throat> and so there would be no reference. If there were a jury trial demand, timely made, there would be no reference. And to that extent, uh, 
<clears throat> the language of the Act uh, would just be beside the point. It would not be beside the point, with all due respect, Justice White. It would enable a reference in the absence of a jury demand. Well, in, those, in, in the damages case where there's a demand for jury trial, uh, the aim of Congress just wouldn't be affected, I guess. Well, I think we have to assume that Congress knew that, and, and the cases are pretty clear on this, that pursuant to B-1B, there cannot be a reference for a jury trial by the magistrate. And we don't differ at all with uh, the petitioner on that point. But we also, I think, have to assume that Congress had in mind not the difference between a jury trial case and a non-jury trial case, but the dichotomy that, as was referred to earlier, exists under Prizer v. Rodriguez. In Prizer, the Court decided, this Court decided, that there was a clear dichotomy between habeas cases on the one hand, where there was a challenge to the fact or duration of confinement, and those cases, on the other hand, where there was a challenge to conditions of confinement. And the Court did cite not only Haynes v. Kerner, which was a case involving solitary confinement and a claim for damages arising out of solitary confinement, but also the Wilberding case, which was a challenge to prison clothing. So the Court clearly had in mind that broad distinction, and so did Congress, because that was the kind of distinction that would serve its aim of broadening discretion, broadening the discretion of Congress to of the uh, court to refer to magistrates. And I think we need to be very clear about what is involved in this particular case. To refer to this case as a single episode case involving damages only is simply wrong. Throughout this case, indeed in the joint appendix uh, incorporating the magistrates' findings at paragraph 56 and 57, there is a clear finding by the magistrate as to the existence of directives pursuant to which and consistent with which, action here was taken against the petitioner. And it was one of the conditions of confinement, as the Second Circuit concluded, that the petitioner would be subject to. But I guess the other side would say, General, that, uh, that uh, this plaintiff didn't care about those conditions. All he cared about was the single incident. Whether the case involves the conditions uh, depends upon what the plaintiff is seeking relief from. If he's seeking relief monetary relief for a past event uh, doesn't involve conditions. It's it's a rational line, I suppose. The the petitioner in this case very much cared about the prison directives. Indeed, he directly challenged them in every complaint, his initial complaint, his amended complaint, his second amended complaint, as exhibits two and three before the magistrate, he offered the written directives, which he sought against the opposition of the state of Connecticut through an FOIA request. So he was very intensely interested in the conditions of confinement as embodied in those regulations, Justice Scalia. And that is very much a matter of the record before this Court. Uh, Underlying the Second Circuit's opinion is the Prizer dichotomy. And we have to assume also underlying the distinction that Congress drew in the structure of this statute is that same dichotomy. Because... Congress, when it wanted to limit the authority of magistrates to refer certain kinds of issues or matters, clearly did so. It did so in B1A. General Blumenthal, uh, if, you, if taking the Prizer dichotomy for a moment, uh, if a plaintiff has a habeas claim, wanting to shorten his time in jail, get out of jail, that is referable to a magistrate by a separate provision of the Act? 
it is referable under that provision of the, of the Act uh, that is provided for in B1B, but it is referred to separately in the Act and clearly embodied in the structure in the Act is that dichotomy which Congress saw this Court making. So on, under, under your interpretation, both sides of the Prizer against Rodriguez types of complaints are referable to magistrates, albeit by, by two different provisions? Yes, that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. And Congress did place limits in B1A on the kinds of matters that could be referred. It also, when it wanted to refer to a pattern or practice, did so, for example, in 42 U.S. Code uh, 1997. Uh, it, it referred to a pattern or practice. Uh, in the RICO statute, it referred to a pattern of racketeering activity. Uh, when conditions or a pattern of action were what Congress sought to deal with, it did so very explicitly. And there is nothing in this statute, nothing at all, nothing in the plain language of this statute or in the legislative history that mentions single episode or continuing pervasive ongoing conditions or that sets up that kind of dichotomy. But on the other hand, is there anything in the legislative history that mentions Prizer? There is nothing, yeah. uh, Justice Stevens, uh, that so Really, the legislative history is kind of a draw, I guess, isn't it? Well, in, in all honesty, uh, the legislative history is, is pretty much silent on this yeah. subject. And what we have to do, what the, with all due respect, what the Court uh, must do in this instance is look to what the purpose of Congress was so clearly, which was to give, to give courts maximum discretion in referring ma- matters to magistrates. Maximum, but really not unlimited either. It's, there are limits on it. Let me ask you this about the jury trial. I don't I understand your opponent to be arguing that there is a violation of the constitutional right. What he's saying is it's somewhat anomalous to say that in order to avoid a reference to a magistrate, uh, that the prisoner must make a jury trial. So that unlike a lot of, if the reference is impermissible without consent, he could normally get the trial before the judge. But he doesn't have that. There are three alternatives, the magistrate, the judge, or the jury. He can avoid the magistrate by insisting on the jury, but there's no way in which he can be sure that he can avoid a magistrate without making that demand. And that clearly... Which is kind of anomalous. Well, I don't know that I would agree that it's anomalous because I think it was the intent of Congress that there be certain non-consensual references right. and that where there is no objection, no timely demand for a jury, it's perfectly proper under B1B for there to be a reference to a magistrate by the district judge. The, the statute doesn't draw a distinction, doesn't constrain discretion as to those cases that, on the one hand, all of which have to be referred to one place or the other. It doesn't say all single-episode cases have to, be, have to go to a district judge. It doesn't say that all damage claims have to go to a district judge. The Congress really was relying on the sound discretion of the courts to protect those rights. And it didn't distinguish either between important cases or unimportant cases, between big cases and small cases. That distinction would have been equally blurred and difficult to apply. In protecting those Seventh Amendment rights, the petitioner and any other litigant would have the clear right to demand a jury and thereby avoid reference to a magistrate. But that would be for the purpose of conducting a jury trial, not to give the petitioner or anyone else the ability to 
choose between the ident- between one judicial officer or another, and thereby, in effect, not only frame his complaint, but make the decision for the courts as to which of those judicial officers would be chosen. This is a, uh, a, a case, I think, that illustrates very dramatically the difficulty of drawing this distinction between a single episode on one hand and a continuing condition on the other, a claim for damages, which was involved, and a claim for injunctive relief. But it also illustrates well the fact that there is a process difficulty with drawing that distinction, which is that anywhere along the line, sua sponte at the Court of Appeals level, as as happened in Clark v. Poulton, this distinction could be raised, and it would be, according to this Court's rulings and according to to most of the courts below, it would be jurisdictional. And as a consequence, if it were successfully raised by whatever party or by the Court itself, the case would have to go back if there were a conclusion that the distinction was erroneously drawn, and it would begin all over again. What would happen in this case is that eight days worth of hearings before the magistrate, 14 pages of docket entries, a massive case, even though it seems like a single instance case, a simple case involving damages. Not so at all. This case consumed a great deal of time on the part of the magistrate, on the part of the district court, and there are reasons of it relating to simply the excruciating administrative difficulties that would arise from adopting the, the uh, distinction that is advanced here by the uh, petitioner. I think it's also illuminating to note how this case really came here and how the conflict in the circuits arose. The story of of the conflict begins with Judge Swigert's concurring opinion in Hill v. Jenkins. Hill v. Jenkins didn't even turn on this issue. It involved a case in which a magistrate had failed to make any kind of findings or recommendations. There was no de novo review. Uh, Error was found for that reason. Justice Swigert, in a concurring opinion, beginning with the word presumably, and then saying what he thought this distinction was between single episode and continuing condition cases, in the next four or five lines, advanced the distinction without any citation, either to other cases or legislative history, concluded that any other interpretation would be, to quote his concurring opinion, strained. The distinction then acquired a kind of life of its own. In what year was that? Do you remember, Mr. General Blumenthal? Uh, Roughly how long ago? It was 1979. 79. 1979 in the Seventh Circuit, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. The the, uh, distinction then acquired, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a life of its own. It was cited sometimes in decisions that really didn't involve the issue at all uh, on both sides. At this point, the uh, 9th, 10th, and 4th circuits have adopted it, the 4th circuit being somewhat ambiguous because it it started to adopt this distinction in a footnote in a case, the Wimmer case, that didn't really involve the issue. Uh, On the other hand, the 8th, and six circuits, along with the Second Circuit now, have gone the other way. The only reason analysis of this distinction and of the merits on, on either side 
are contained in the Clark v. Poulton opinion for the majority, in which there is a, a very strong dissent and in which there is now being considered a petition for rehearing uh, with a suggestion on Bonk, and, of course, the opinion of Judge Newman uh, for the Second Circuit below. We contend that our distinction, which is drawn clearly, naturally, logically, the distinction adopted by the Second Circuit, is one that serves the best, the, the true goals of Congress in this uh, statute, a goal that has been endorsed and articulated by this Court in United States v. Raddatz, which involved the question of whether a motion for suppression hearing could be referred to uh, a magistrate. The Court concluded that it could, that there did not have to be a new hearing uh, before the district judge, and that it was the district judge who should have discretion under the statute because that fit the structure of the statute, the purpose of Congress, to broaden the authority of magistrates, to ease the workload uh, of the district judges, consistent with Seventh Amendment rights, because prisoners could continue to demand a jury trial, and do often, but that discretion on the part of the district judge would exist whenever and wherever there were no timely jury demand. I would just conclude by citing for this Court also the dissent that is contained in the Clark v. Poulton case from Judge Anderson, which I think strikingly illustrates the incongruity or anomaly, to use two words that have been used today, of the petitioner's approach. A single beating case would have to go to a district judge, but a, a case alleging daily beating of prisoners would go inexorably to a magistrate. That cannot be in the interests of anyone, not the judiciary, not the public, not even perhaps of prisoners, because let's remember that cases would have to be referred if they involved a single episode claim for damages under uh, petitioner's theory, even where, where the prisoner himself or herself might want to be heard by the magistrate at the prison. Very unlikely that the district judges would go out to the prison, but there would be great advantages, and were in this case, to having cases of this type heard at the prison, where evidence would be accessible, documents would be there, and the difficulties of uh, going to court and having that, that same accessibility would be avoided. General Blumenthal, I don't what? think it has anything to do with this case, but the average prisoner would rather get out of prison than to have the case tried there. And indeed, uh, Justice Marshall, uh, the, uh, interestingly, the prayer for relief initially offered uh, by the petitioner here was uh, $100,000 in damages, uh, injunctive relief against the directives, and get me out of prison. <laughs> Judge Hastings used to refer to that as the holiday in court, his wife's <laughs> holiday in court. Yeah. Well, what, you know, what you say about the practicalities may be true. Well, uh, Congress surely could have uh, picked better language to do what you, what you say it's done. I, I mean, the phrase petitions challenging conditions of employment, one doesn't refer to, you know, if there's an automobile accident and somebody sues for damages, you, you, you don't say that, uh, that, that I am challenging the other person's driving of a car. A petition challenging something really does does call to mind uh, a request for declaratory or injunctive relief. 
Uh, when you're suing for money, I don't know that you say you're challenging something. Very strange terminology for what you have in mind here. Well, the Second Circuit concluded, and of course we agree, that what Congress had in mind was the language of Prizer, even though Prizer is not cited in the legislative history, and perhaps it had not yet become a term of art. But conditions of confinement in the context of prison life, in the context of being confined, very arguably extends to anything that happens while that person is subject to the guard and care of the confining of I understand. I'm not focusing on, on conditions of confinement now. I'm focusing on the words petitions challenging. And it seems to me that that does have a connotation of uh, asking you to stop asking for an injunction or, 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 or a declaratory order rather than asking for damages for something that's already happened. Can you think of any other context in which you'd refer to a damage action as an action in which somebody challenged something? I mean, uh, we, you know, we if have, you sock me in the nose, I don't bring a, a suit challenging your punching me in the nose. That would be a very strange way to, to put it. We have cited in our brief uh, the definition contained in, in the dictionary, the some historical references and uses of uh, the term petition to describe actions that may not involve equitable relief. But it would have been highly unlikely that Congress would have meant to circumscribe and cut out an entire class of actions. And indeed, petitioner concedes that uh, the, the fit is not perfect uh, without very clearly indicating its intent to do so. And the concessions that petitioner makes in footnotes 3 and footnote 9 very considerably eviscerate whatever argument could have been made on the basis of the distinction between equitable relief on the one hand and damages relief on the other hand. The petitioner concedes in those footnotes that ancillary claims for damages, as he refers to them, can be referred to the magistrate when they involve injunctive relief. And what is ancillary in one jurist's view may be very different from what it is in another jurist's view. And in, in footnote 9 mentions the instance of a single uh, petitioner who is deprived, allegedly deprived of constitutionally satisfactory meals as, a, as opposed to pervasive conditions. That distinction again seems to be breaking down. So we would contend that, as opposed to the, the distinction offered by petitioner, which is novel, imported, and really unworkable, that adopted by the Second Circuit is a natural, logical, reasonable one, consistent with the purpose of the statute and with the Seventh Amendment and other statutory provisions. If there are no further questions, Mr. Chief Justice, that concludes my argument. Thank you, General Blumenthal. Mr. Cerf, do you have rebuttal? You have three minutes remaining. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, we have no rebuttal. Thank you very kindly. Very well. The case is submitted.